one one good question is why do you meditate? But that question goes back what what did the Buddha teach and why did he teach it? So he taught the Noble Eightfold Path. He he didn't teach Samatha Vipassana. That's a later invention. He taught Noble Eightfold Path. Okay. Within which you have right concentration, right understanding and so on. And um, why did he teach it? To reduce suffering and to get to enlightenment. Okay, so what is enlightenment? Is that part of your project? It, it's a, what's enlightenment? It, obviously, well I don't know, it's, a, it's an awareness of consciousness and, and that lack of attachments and so you're guessing, or...? Yeah, or, I'm guessing. I'm okay. big time guessing. Because <laughs> it seems to me, you, 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 you do this either with the... You, you do things because you have some sense of a goal. So do you have a goal? Yeah, I... And how would you define the goal? Uh, equanimity, joy, and, uh, and this... this this, uh, tranquility of so positive, state, positive, positive states of mind, or yes. and these positive states of mind, did they come and go? Yes. So is that a good idea? No. I don't know. I mean, yeah. no, no, I, mean, um, but I don't want to put words in your that, mouth. That's the insight you're saying, right? That's that's. Well, if, if something was constructed. And it was pleasant, but then it got deconstructed because of cause and conditions. Is that really reliable, or I just didn't think it was there yet. Yeah, you know, I thought maybe I can get to a state where, where? You could be, that you could be walking around in the state of of, of sublime consciousness, which you presumably have you, you like. Where did you get that definition of sublime <laughs> consciousness? Because we start to use jargon yeah. about something we don't know. Exactly. Yeah. So, if you, uh, I always go back to the Buddha's def, kind of two definitions of his his attainment, right? And so I go back to one is in the Four Noble Truths that there is suffering and the end of suffering. So he's talking. The goal is the end of suffering. It's not tranquility. Yeah. yeah? Um, not that he doesn't say that tranquility is important, but that's not the goal. The goal is the inner suffering. And the way that goal is defined is through the abandonment of the attachment to craving, tanha. That's the... So are you yeah. kind of clear in your studies around that? Yes. Yeah, okay. So you have third noble truth, second noble truth. Yeah. And third noble truth is the realization of nibbana, and that's defined as the cessation of craving the abandonment of craving, the lego craving. So if you have that model in mind, mm-hmm. you have a way of approaching what you're doing in meditation and seeing is it in line with craving or the attachment to craving or is it the letting go of craving. So if you're doing meditation practice with a craving to get tranquil, you're, you're producing more suffering. Yeah. You're, you're, you're creating the causes for suffering because you're not seeing 
that your intention is to fulfill craving. And craving can never be fulfilled. I was hoping it would have the seeds of its own destruction. You know, that, that you can start on the path and then and see the, the insight of what you need to do thereafter. But what's your methodology? Can I hope? Is it like you just sort of do something? No, really. Well, I'm, I'm seeing positive effects. Okay. I, 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 can, I can walk out and suddenly be walking and then you're kind of like not have to there's awareness, but not have to be thinking about something else or know something, or walking just that. And I'm there in the moment, and so I'm feeling there's some progress. Um, and clearly, maybe I'm thinking there's a hole in this, and maybe I need to look at insight meditation sides of things. Well, I, I would say you have to look at Buddhism mm. rather than start to pick it apart about things which maybe you're not clear even in the language like what insight is so if you go back to buddhism mm -hmm. and and the four noble truths you certainly had like the word vipassana has been very recent you don't find it much in the texts but what you do find is dukkha its cause and its end and the path right so that should be one of the models you pick up for the consideration of what's the goal of practice. If you don't, I think if you don't have that, you could just be hit and miss. I guess it's like a geologist. You're up north, and you've got coordinates that help you to navigate where you're going and map out what you're looking for or whatever, right? And those coordinates, you're always kind of keeping in mind. Like I'm, I'm trying to learn some CAD programming right now, and I have to keep the coordinates of my drawings well fixed so that I understand what the drawings are doing. Hmm? Right. And if you don't have those coordinates, then you can you can do good things, but you don't really have you don't really have like a, a path, I suppose. Noble Eightfold Path. So I think I think to go back to that always to see, okay, that that's the sort of basic structure that I should always be referring to. So that when I fall into doubts or I'm not sure I can go back and say, well, what, what's, what's the program here? What's, I'm suffering. Yeah, okay, I'm suffering. What's the cause? And what's the end of that suffering? If you always use that and go back to that, then you've always got a way, you've always got a path. If you don't, and you're sort of, well, I've missed out on Vipassana, and I've done Samatha, it's, it, doesn't have, it doesn't have the definition that the Buddha offered us. Yeah, okay. Uh, so that's one way he talked about the goal. And the other way he said there was the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless, Nibbana, the island, the harbor, peace, end of suffering. So that was the other way he talked about it. You've never seen that? No. Yeah. I can't. I say this every five tea times I come up with this. <laughs> so the Buddha does say that there is a possibility. And he, you know, so, you know, think about the story, the, the Buddha realizes something. He doesn't just have, you know, it's not like some kind of vacuum that he teaches out of. He teaches from a realization. And so we, we, we call it enlightenment or whatever, but we sometimes don't think clearly, well, what might that mean? We just think, oh, enlightenment, yeah, that's for Buddhas, and I'm going to try to get there. Yeah. But somehow, sometimes we don't just go back, so what, 
what, what, what might that be pointing to? Huh? So, so there's that language, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, deathless, peace, uh, Nibbana. So then if we use Nibbana, that, that's a kind of technical word which gets so overused you can't use it anymore, I think. Yeah. Nirvana is like a rock goop or a perfume or something. <laughs> <laughs> really, you know. So it just becomes a corrupted word, I think. And, and enlightenment too. You kind of think you know what you're talking about when you talk. Well, what do you mean by enlightenment? People don't really know. So it's important to, I, I, I would think, to consider, well, what, the, what do these words mean? And what does that then point to? And why does he teach the Four Noble Truths? So you kind of start to unpack it. And you, if you get the whole picture, you'll understand why he's pointing to what he's pointing to. Okay? So he says there's the uncreated, the unconditioned, the unborn. So, if my attention is on the conditioned, the created, and the born, then my attention is not available for the unconditioned. True? The logic is pretty logic clear. Is yeah. Clear. So, if my attention is preoccupied with the created, the born, the conditioned, the death-bound, as long as my attention is there, it won't be available for the unconditioned, whatever that might be, even though I don't know. Okay. Okay. So then, the Buddha says that that which has the nature to arise, has the nature to cease, is unreliable, and is not yours. Not self. He doesn't say there's no self. Correct? Yes. And he doesn't say make an absolute. There's no self. Nothing. He says there is. There are conditions that arise and cease. They're unreliable, they're unstable, and they're un unreliable, and they are dukkha. Now they're dukkha because they are not the unconditioned, they're conditioned. They're not dukkha because they're bad. So in, in the Pali you have several uses of the word dukkha. I'm not a Pali scholar, but you have dukkha vedana, which is the feeling, unpleasant feeling of maybe me stabbing me myself in the arm like this. Or uh, you have Sukha Vedana, so I, I drink a bit of tea and it's pleasant. So that's Sukha and Dukkha, that's one way it's used. But you also have Dukkha as a characteristic, or Dukkha Lakana. Stay with me on this one. Um, and anything which has the condition to change, anything which is born, will die, will cease, will disappear, uh, means that it cannot be the unconditioned. Correct? Understood. So, it's unsatisfactory. So that's where you get this strange paradox where we say, and you've got to follow me now, Sukha Vedana has Dukkha Lakana. Yeah. You got that? It's the nature of it. That it's, its nature is that although it's pleasant, it will change. And if you're looking for the unchanging, then you're looking in the wrong place. And once you have that, then you can enjoy pleasure. But you don't expect pleasure to fulfill you. Because pleasure, if you think it will fulfill you, when it changes, it will disappoint you. So tranquility, it has Sukha Vedana in it, 
right? Very sukha. How could be more sukha than that? But it changed. So whatever whatever experience you had, it was dukkha, lakana. It was unsatisfactory because it ended, right? So you can still enjoy tranquility and make the mind calm and still and all of that, but that can't be the goal by definition because it's not there now. So whatever is unconditioned, uncreated, unborn must be always here now. Right? Yes. It, ca it can't be anywhere other than here now. Because it, it, if it was there later, it would not be unconditioned. It would be something that depended on conditions for me to realize down the road. Is that... You can, well, it's like... I understand that I, I've changed. I can see my baby picture and I know who I am, so yeah. I've changed. At some level, there's a logic I can follow that I'm changing. Who has, what has changed? Or, or things have changed. Change have changed. Yes. So what's uh, unchanging? Uh, that, well, can I just finish my yeah, yeah. So if, if um, I was hoping things like like there would be an insight that suddenly I understand what change is at a level that's beyond my mind but into my heart. I don't know that's wrong terminology. So that the 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 things are impermanent I get at one level, but obviously not like like the people say the uh, doctor comes in and, and says that you've got cancer, you better stop smoking, and suddenly you do, you do stop smoking, because suddenly it's right there. But it's not 20 Buddhism. years ago, but you... That's not how Buddhism works. It's not, it's not some kind of magic thing that you trip upon. Okay. The system, and, and so, okay, back to what I was talking about. Thank you. <laughs> um, so anything that you experienced and lost, cannot be the unconditioned, right? Because it came and went. Right. It might be a, a, a good foundation for having more presence, more awareness. So morality is something which is a good foundation for having presence and awareness, but it's not the unconditioned. So then you get to the, the teaching of craving. Now what craving is doing, Tanha, I go back to the Four Noble Truths, what craving is doing, it's seeking conditions. Conditions which will satisfy you. Right? So it's, it's in it, and craving is always, in, in Buddhism, is always associated with not understanding, with ignorance. It's not just like wanting to be warm. That's just biological wanting, there's nothing wrong with that. But craving is that mind which does not understand that to seek fulfillment in an object which is going to change is a losing proposition. But when you begin to see that that craving for objective happiness in itself can be known as an object and you no longer are the subject of that craving, you begin to have a chance of seeing that craving cease. Not because you found a satisfactory object, experience, condition, relationship, not because of that, not that you got satisfied by things, but you saw the end of wanting. And when you see the end of wanting, this kind of wanting, then you start to realize the silence of the mind, the unconditioned. That's why craving is so very important. And that's, that was the Buddha's method, you see. 
So it wasn't like a hopeful thing that if you sort of just kind of are around, that then kabang, you know. So you you read about Zen monks who practice and practice and practice, and then they, a piece of bamboo whacks them in the head and they're enlightened. That's Zen. <laughs> but this is you don't see what the, the guy's been doing for forty years, right? He's been practicing all kinds of things. So the, 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 the methodology is quite clear. When craving arises, you know it as an object, don't attach to it, don't create a self around it. As it ceases, you're inclining to the unconditioned because you're not relying on conditions, you're not seeking conditions, you're not trying to get rid of conditions. Then what would help you do that is if you had good morality, if you had a calm mind. So if you did meditation and that created a calmness in mind, and then that calmness you would start to seek as an object, then that wouldn't be very helpful. But if that calmness allowed you to see the craving for more calmness, or whatever the craving is, give you more presence and more insight, and, and you were able to let go of craving because of that calmness, yeah. then that would be serving the higher goal rather than the end in itself. And it seems to me you're you're you know, where where you're you're coming from is that tranquility is an end in itself, rather than as a servant to the unconditioned, or to the realization of the unconditioned. Does that make it, sense? It's not the whole thing, but I agree. It, I have seen, um, I'm not my thoughts, I know that. I see thoughts come up. I can see that there's, there's a nature that it, I want to have a sense uh, uh, come into play to get sensuality. There's a, I can see that, I can see my thoughts about to go someplace to get something to bring it back, so for me to look at it, I can see that. So there's an insight there I get. I'm hoping there's more of them. Uh, well, stick with the Four Noble Truths. Yeah. Go back to craving. At any given moment, just sit there and watch what's happening. What am I going to do tomorrow? The craving arises, a sense of self is born, and you oh, no, just let go. So as soon as you start meditating, you know, when you start meditating, what's the, what, what, where does the mind go to? First of all, it goes to time. It picks up time, past and future, right? Moves from, from past and future. I, I was and I will be. And that's, that, that very construct cannot help you to realize the unconditioned because you're bound in thought and thought is in time and since the self is in time. It's necessary, you know, like um, how long will it take us to drive to St. Catherine's? Do we have petrol in the tank? What time of the day should we leave? Yeah, it's functionally necessary. But for understanding, realizing the Buddha's realization, uh, you have to let go of past and future. And how do you do that? Well, it's like this. Right? And then so, if, if you're looking for an experience, you're not letting go of past and future. If you're looking for an experience of tranquility or enlightenment, you're in the future. So you, you, you come to this realization, well, the unconditioned must be about now. That's the only thing it could be about. It can't be about an experience tomorrow. And that, that insight grounds you into the determination to be present to the way things are. If you have an idea that somewhere down the road I'm going to have this kind of experience, you're still bound by time? Time and self, right? 
and that and that's so that's the first step is present moment awareness and then as you as you ground it in present moment awareness then the narratives of craving are challenged by awareness itself and you, and you see that this uh, thing going to the future is just a thought in the present moment and you begin to feel what craving feels like it's uncomfortable and it might be the craving to not have something or it might be the craving to have something right it's negative or positive so is it is it the practice of because I can see that I do see that right but the next day I will do something else but when I meditate I see it so do I need 30 years of always seeing it then become habitual to always see it you don't need 30 years you or, need successive or, moments you need success, successive moments of presence to to gain an insight into your character it's not about like you, you can be a monk for for lifetimes but not be very present right so it's it's the strength of presence and and this and right understanding that facilitates the abandonment of craving but then the strength of the craving that depends you know like some people say maybe like someone's like someone's had child abuse something like that and the strength of their fears might be so strong that the craving not to be present is, is almost overwhelming, it's hard, right? So we have different kind of conditions that we have to experience, and so on and so forth. But if you, if you see that the project is awakening, and that the awakened mind is the closest approximation to enlightenment you can have, that this, the knowing this moment as it is, that's your closest chance, and that you trust in that and stay with that, should, things should take care of themselves. But if the present moment is, is in some way fraught with desire, so let's say, let's say I'm, a, um, I'm a smoker, right? and I like to smoke or something like that, and my mind is always preoccupied with that desire and, and I can't let go of it, then my mind will always follow that pattern we won't know any freedom but if I can know the desire to smoke and witness it and see it's not the smoking it's desire itself this movement towards objects and I patiently endure it and that's very hard to, to, to endure unfulfilled cravings is actually very, very difficult but if I do that then what I'm doing is I'm enhancing present moment awareness and that takes me to stillness and that's the stillness of, of Nibbana, that's what we talk about. So if you, if you, if you can, um, you, it's not like, you, you, what you always begin with is what you should always end up with, is this moment, just as it is. Because this moment, when you just let it be, there's no craving there. It's only if you want this moment to be something other than it is. And there's no self in it, that's just thought. Right? So it's like returning to this suchness and then watching how habit takes you away from the present moment. History, projects, you know, whatever, whatever the conditioned mind likes to do. Yeah, I actually, I get that. And then so Vipassana and Samatha, like I, we, I was never taught that you try to separate them. You know, that's a kind of modern idea where Sajjan Shah said, well, the more 
more focused, well, I don't want to paraphrase one point child, but the more focused you are or present, the more you'll understand life. The more understand life, the more you'll be focused and present. They serve each other, hand in glove, right? So I don't think you've ignored insight. I mean, you're not, you know, you've seen suffering and its cause, right? You've worked with that. But I would, I would question your uh, attitude towards tranquility. Is it a, is it a tool or is it a goal? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, yeah. It, obviously, if it's not working, it's not a good goal. <laughs> if it's a, if it's a skill, then that can be a goal, yeah, right? Right. Fair enough. So, like, if I want to make furniture and I want to develop the skill of uh, cutting a good joint with a saw. Okay, I know it's for a larger project, but that, I'm, I'm not just cutting wood for the sake of cutting wood, as it were. So, so do you have a larger project? So you can bring it to the present moment. What helps you to come to the present moment? What helps you to let go of craving? What helps you to be, to know the way things are? But I know I'm not always successful either because I don't have the insight or the practice of it, or the vigilance yeah. of it, right? And that's what I'm working with. Exactly. That's what we're all doing. Yeah. So yeah. We're all we're all working on that. But you, if you have if you have the ideas correct, yeah. then you can solve your own doubts. Well, I just saw for the first time. I I doubted that. I saw the attractiveness of all that I've been doing over the years, because it is attractive. It's wonderful things, and so I doubted it because of this attractiveness. Like you said, it's a, it's, it's a clinging to it. How much of a day was attractive? I'm sorry? How much of your day did you realize attractiveness with that practice? Like, oh, in a no, day no. of 24 hours, oh, I, uh, yeah. was it five minutes? Well, I, I feel I have more ease. But I'm just those specific experiences, like were they, did they last for days and days and no. days? They no, were no, oh no 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 not at all no no. So they like they so were. So that's why the doubt was uh, maybe I'm doing I should look another way. So they were glimpses kind of of peace. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they weren't like days and days and days and days. No. So that's very ephemeral, isn't it? Yes. So to chase the ephemeral is uh, chasing the condition. Which is I kind of went back to the insight kind of meditations philosophy that sort of look at, like you're saying, uh, can you look into breath and see the nature of change? Right, yeah. Right, and so that's an insight. Uh, and maybe I It can be an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Insights got, you know, like, you know, you know, you can say, oh, it's changing. I can say the weather's changing. Yes. But holding your attention with the perception of anicca for long spans of time is really what we talk about mindfulness of change. It's an opinion about change. Well, everyone knows the weather changes, right? So that's not insight. That's just uh, common knowledge. Whereas, whereas um, the because when you talk when we talk about mindfulness, we usually talk about mindfulness of a theme, mindfulness with anapanasati, mindfulness with anicca sanya. So mindfulness with anicca is the constant, uh, sustained attention on the perception of change. Mm. It makes it much different. Mm. So it's a much more... Um, focused. M focused, yeah. 
So, and, and if you're doing that, you're constantly doing that, and if you feel upset, the perception of change dominates. But if you're not doing that, what dominates is the upsetness, the storyline, the narrative, the sense of self, blah, 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 blah. But if, you, if you're really training in an Icha, then as the upsetness comes up, oh, this is changing. What's the changing nature of this? You're with it. And it doesn't fool you. It ceases. And that's different than say, oh yeah, I really got upset yesterday, but it's not there now. <laughs> I mean, I do feel like I'm uh, not the third person idea, but... Witness. I, I can, yeah, I feel like a witness to what's happening. Good. And yeah. that you can, like, something hits you, but you don't necessarily react. You may later, but... In first national, it's, it's a witness to what happened, but it's not. That's it. You're not caught in the storyline. Enveloped by it. That's it. That's what you want. Yeah. That's so I'm, I'm trying to do that as you're walking along and you just sort of, I call it third person, look at what's going on in around you. But witness is a, is a better way of saying it, I think. I like awakening. Sometimes witnessing it can be, but it can be very much controlling. You get tired of it. Whereas the awakened mind just knows. I mean, it's just words. Yeah, it's just words. Whatever. What I think first and foremost, keep yourself in the present moment and get out of the storylines of self mm. when it's appropriate. Like the storylines of self are appropriate in morality. So if, if you know, if if I am a monk is appropriate. I have certain precepts that's appropriate as a, as a convention. But then as a witness to the flow of consciousness, there's change. And it feels this way, coming back to that open mind. The awake mind is what you want. Getting there. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of it is there's nowhere to go. <laughs> When you figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> could you, you have talked about the unconditional, could you explain again what we have to, what we see the, in the unconditional? Is it, we don't relate it, it's the present moment, we don't relate it to the past or to the future? Well, the unconditioned you, can, you can't describe, can you? No. You couldn't, because any, any description you'd have would be a condition, it's big, it's small, it's peaceful. So we have words like peace, harbor, right? So the, the pathway to that realization is not through analytical description, but either there are a few words, uh, the mind which is luminous, uh, uh, extensive, all-knowing, they have a, a bit of language, not much. So it's more like via negativa. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, right? So what it's not, is that which is changing. So it's, it, uh, the unconditioned cannot be a sound. So if I'm, if I'm distracted or preoccupied with sounds, then I'm caught in the condition. In other words, if I'm sitting here and uh, Nirasa is mowing the lawn and I'm trying to talk to you and it's very loud, that's a condition called loud, unpleasant noise. And if I know it as that, then I'm abiding I'm tending towards the unconditioned knowing. If I attach to that sound, I shouldn't be here, I don't want this sound, then I'm in the conditioned. Okay, so all sounds are unsatisfactory. So non-grasping of the pleasant or unpleasant of sound. 
and then you take that through all the senses. So then, so sound is easy, maybe, but take an emotion, an emotion of self-doubt or or fear or or loneliness. You know, they're they're very powerful, and and they can be very very unpleasant. And then to abide as witness to that, is hard to do because the craving mind is so strong to have security or, or or whatever it is. So then you you you. You, your contemplation is, oh, yeah, but that's only a condition. Loneliness is only a condition. It arises and ceases. It might be very difficult to get to that statement, because loneliness might be so powerful and, and so threatening and all the rest of it. But if in the midst of loneliness you can say, oh, even this is changing, even this is okay, it all belongs, then you're strengthening the awake mind and you're uh, weakening the coupling of attention to emotions, the preoccupation with emotions. Let's say someone who might, so the emotional world is really hard to, to not grasp. So then the way we talk about the unconditioned is the non-grasping of the khandhas or the sense experience. So it's very via negativa. It's not about uh, defining or getting. It's more about awareness of change and non-grasping, letting go. And from that you see craving arise. And as craving ceases, the mind realizes more the kind of unconditioned silence or peace of the mind. Um, so that's why you get a statement from the Buddha, but then his methodology is more around the formable truths. But because it emphasizes conditioned phenomena a lot, and the letting go of conditioned phenomena, people forget, well, he did realize something. It wasn't just a negation of, of sense experience. So then you think, okay, what kind of sense experiences might be conducive to awareness and presence? A walk in the woods, uh, a balanced diet, uh, yoga, um, good friendships. And these are all things which help you, you know, you know, stay present. If you want to read something about the unconditioned, the definitive text from our tradition is called The Island, Ajahn Amaro's book, Ajahn Ajahn Amarapasana, which is this big, and it has all the avenues of approach of that, what that language is about, right? Nibbana and the unconditioned, and it has words from Ajahn Shah, Ajahn Sumedho, from Dzogchen, from Zen, from other, other traditions too, but that's a, that's a tone. Because I found it easy to um, not attach to something we see or with things with the five senses. But when emotion appears, yeah. we can ignore a song or a, and it's okay. But in ignoring an emotion is much more difficult. It's not so much ignoring it. You can't ignore it. Nothing, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what it, but it's first of all it's it's seeing the storyline that grows around it, the narrative, right? Learning to let go of that, to know pure emotion. So if you, if you do things like you listen to sound, get pure sound, before you think about it. So you get, you get the mind to a sense of receptive attention. To do that, you have to stop thinking. You have to come to the present moment. Sound is like this. And you train in that a lot. The breath is like this. Right? No definitions, just like that. 
So then, then what you're doing is you're enhancing this capacity to be with things just as they are, rather than your rejection or infatuation with them. Now, if you do that on the ordinary and the mundane, then when the emotions come up, you've got some background attitudes and skills which might be able to be with this burning now, let's say, or whatever the passion is, in the same pure way. Burning feels like this. And you can see it's much harder. And what, why is it much harder? Because of our history, you know, because of what we've done around it, because of our thoughts that we've created around it, and because of craving. So when you, like, if you, if you have, like, if you feel self-doubt, people feel self-doubt, it's a horribly unpleasant feeling. So they start to think and try to figure it out. But to just, just to have self-doubt, feel pathetic and useless, and say, oh, this is what pathetic and useless feels like, but not believe it, not become pathetic and useless, <laughs> but actually know it at, like you know sound? No, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. It's not to be dismissed as something that's fast, you know, it's easy, to, it's not easy to do, but the principle's the same. But if every time self-doubt comes up, I have to go to you, am I okay? Am I okay? You say, you're okay, you're okay. Oh, whew, good. <laughs> am I okay? Am I, yeah, you're okay. Oh, good. Am I, you know, each time I set up that relationship, uh, I, my, I, 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 I lose the ability to um, to be free within that emotion. But if one day I, I, I want to go to you and say, am, am I okay? I, I say, no, this is what self-doubt feels like. I'm starting to work with a, a difficult habit. What does it feel like? Oh, she's looking at me strange. Maybe. Am I? No, I'm not going to, you know. And, and you stay with it and you stay with it and you realize it ceases because you haven't created a self around it. If you create a self, then nothing will work. When you're just with a pure, uncomfortable feeling, in this case, self-doubt, and you stay, and you, and you're right, yeah, this too will change, and and then it ceases, and you realize, wow, it's gone. Not because you reassured me, and I felt reassured for a day, but because the very nature of that condition is impermanent. It's not who I am, and that you can see is a bigger insight. And what it does, it strengthens the uh, the, the the inclination to the unconditioned. Because that knowing is unconditioned. The, the object is conditioned. Is that, yeah? No, it's, uh, yes, but it's hard work, like in family, yeah. parents, kids, and so on. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's hard. Husbands. Huh? Husbands. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know why it's that. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not my experience. You can't have power. But it's the same. Yeah. You know, monks, junior monks, abbots, it's just people. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, you, I think if you get the principle that the awakened mind is your closest approximation to freedom, and if you can stay with that and, and, and not get swamped by the conditions, then you're inclining towards the unconditioned. Because that sense of knowing isn't isn't a condition. You know, like knowing the way things are now, it's not like it, it doesn't depend on conditions. I might feel hot or cold, but the knowing of that doesn't depend on them. Right? It just knows, just knowing. So that's why Ajahn Sumedha would teach now is the knowing. Um, in Pocha, in Thailand, Puru would be the knowing, 
and that kind of thing. It's very simple. It's very elegant. It's just our minds are, are caught in the complexities of thought usually. I just don't believe my thoughts. <laughs> just doesn't. <laughs> well, he says he's very quiet too. There's not much more to believe in. <laughs> so, like, whenever you're sitting around, just learn to listen. You're like, if you're if you're waiting for the dana, right? Because you'll find that when there's nothing happening, you go on automatic pilot, and automatic pilot uses your thought. You're thinking about this or that, but actually put some discipline into it. But oh. Just listen and bring your mind to that clarity because it's not threatening and there's nothing happening. Just, um, I mean, if there's something happening, you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Mark, were you? I'm not sure how to ask the question, so uh, bear with me a little bit. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> explore it. Yeah, um, I just read Getting Off. Both uh, Yeah. Wow. Who you know. Um, and he said something right before he disrobed that's got me thinking. Uh, one of the things I wonder about is if we're afraid to be liberated. Because he talked about whether he was afraid of letting go of desire because he wasn't sure what would be left. Right? Uh-huh. And also being afraid of letting go of this discontent. And so, I don't know how to articulate this, but it's got me wondering if we even though we can know that desire and craving creates suffering, is there a part of us, whatever the us is, with little you, that's afraid of letting that go because the idea of nothingness or emptiness? That, I've heard that said. I, I find that too abstract. I just find craving itself difficult to let go of. You know, the, the, the preference to comfort, like say emotionally say, Feeling, feeling, uh, wanting to get rid of fear. Um, it's much easier to run away from life, say, than look at the discomfort of fear. To me, that seems to be the problem. Um, but I've never, I can't. I, I mean, I've heard that, but I can't. Personally, I can't relate to that. I can't. I, you know, the fear of not having my, my, my delusions has <laughs> never been a problem. <laughs> if I would put it that way. Because, you know, we do taste uh, the, you know, we do taste moments when there is no craving. And, and we feel, yeah. And then the craving comes up again, right? So, having tasted those moments, and I think those moments, they're not, they're not constructed things. Like, like you can do you can do a retreat and, and, and do a lot of sense uh, um, suppression, sense uh, deprivation, I suppose, because there's no, no stimulus. And you can, you can do a samatha uh, uh, practice and get the mind very tranquil. But as soon as the, condi- you know, that stays for a while, but as soon as the causes and conditions are there. But also you can, you can see moments where there's no craving, which are kind of come unbidden. These little like messages from, and you see, well, there's just, there's something there, that you see, yeah. That 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 would be that would be interesting, and and then the impetus for practice comes more, I think, from that. So, yeah, I can't, I can't. 
can't relate to that. Oh, you know, there's this part of me that would be so hopeful that those moments would be so powerful and convincing that they would encourage us to let go of craving. But they do. Yeah. Depends on, I guess you would, in Christianity, you call that an, an, an epiphany. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's something deeply spiritual changes one's attitudes. Not because you constructed it and, and built it, but because it was a grace, I suppose, in, in a Christian sense or something. And, and then you try to repeat them with desire. Right. Right. <laughs> and you're just, and you don't realize it wasn't about desire. It was something about letting go. Must it. Yeah, so that's why if you come back, if you if you then try to repeat that experience, you're caught in craving. But if you come back to the basic uh, model, then okay, okay, whatever it is, what's the craving? Back to square one. There's a very famous uh, Long Paul died in the same time as Ajahn Man, I think, Ajahn Dun. So he put the four, you probably heard this, he put the Four Noble Truths in a slightly different way. He said, so the Four Noble Truths, you know, is there's suffering, it's cause, it's end, and the path. Now he said, the mind going out to objects is the cause. The result of the mind going out to objects is suffering. The mind knowing the mind is the path. The result of the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. So the mind knowing the mind is like kind of awareness knowing awareness or suchness. It's like this. Could you see that in the start of it? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. So the normal formulation, first noble truth, there is suffering. Second noble truth, there is cause. Third noble truth, there's end. Fourth noble truth, there's path. He says, the mind going out to objects is the cause. The result of the mind going out to object is suffering. Okay. Two and one. The mind knowing the mind is the path. Okay. The result of the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. Three and four. Yet you won't remember it tonight. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a while to get get the first two. (laughs) (laughs) It's so simple, but the mind. It took me a while to yeah nail it down, but. But if you get that, like you see, yeah, the mind, you get, that's the, that's the basic principle of the attachment to the khandhas, or sense experience, the mind going out mm-hmm. with fascination, or with disgust, or whatever, in, in, into the objective sense experience. And then rejecting that would be a self-mortification. You know, I shouldn't see, or I shouldn't hear. Well, that's not it either, because it's part of it. And then the mind knowing the mind is, is just knowing awareness itself. Oh, yeah, right now there is awareness. Irrespective of the sense experience, it doesn't matter. Hot, cold, good, bad, big, small, insults, praise, good food, bad food, death, sickness, it doesn't matter. There is the knowing. Mind knowing the mind is the path. And that's the end of suffering. And that's very immediate. So if you're looking for the end of suffering tomorrow, it can't be, by definition, because that's con- you know, it's the end. Of, it's the unconditioned. The end of suffering is a realization of the unconditioned. <laughs> I think I'm confusing you now, <laughs> Mark. Well, could you say something about pleasure then? Yeah, so is the point of pleasure an end in itself, particularly if it's looked at as just that as a nature? 
Pleasure has a, has a biological significance. So my knees are hurting, so I move into something marginally more pleasant. So that it's necessary. Food tastes good, you eat it, otherwise you wouldn't bother, right? It's such a hassle. Eating, <laughs> it tastes good, and so on and so forth. So pleasure is a biological principle. Pain is good, or you step on a nail, you move away from pain, and so on. Um, but also in Buddhism, there are, there are wholesome, pleasurable states with it, which the Buddha encourages us to develop. So that, like the pleasure of um, someone that you're angry at and, then, and embarrassing them in public, that might give you pleasure, but it would be unskillful and wholesome because it's cruel and it's coming from ego and so on. So what, what, what might be pleasurable and joyous <clears throat> that would be a foundation for uh, the mind which is liberated from craving. <clears throat> well, just being with the breath in a pleasant way. Well, just, just make, make it a pleasant experience. Oh, that feels nice. Yeah, that feels nice. As opposed to... <sighs> <laughs> or whatever you might do. And, and so you're using the, the suggestion of pleasure not as an experience you're trying to get, but so you can be with the object of meditation in a more continuous way. That's a, a skillful use of pleasure. Um, the um, generosity is a very pleasant thing to do. So, so um, Mudita get flowers and all kinds of goodies, and that's pleasant, wasn't it? It's a good feeling. It's a good feeling for me, a good feeling for you. And that is a good feeling that it, we would say is the basis for enlightenment. Because it's not based on uh, it's not based on a sense experience which I'm getting and holding on to. It's based on the kind of innate goodness that we can manifest, which creates a, a foundation for peace and morality. You know, like like we're um, like refraining from dumping on the person that you want to revenge. Right? It's difficult to do, but at, afterwards you think, oh, glad I didn't say that. Glad I didn't hurt them. I'm glad I didn't do that, right? So that, that can be pleasant, because it, the results, consequential results, can be pleasant. Um, and the Brahma-viharas, the <coughs> compassion, and, and the, 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 the third Brahma-vihara, Mudita's name, is, um, is the sense of, of the, that there, in the world there is beauty, and there is joy, and, and some of that joy comes up when uh, I see someone who is happy. I say, ah, good on you. Or I see someone who's successful, hey, yeah, you're doing all right. Or uh, I, it might be I just see uh, um, the bird feeder. That makes me happy. All these crazy blue jays. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. So there can be beauty in nature, which can be very uplifting. Uh, I found that with my mother. Um, when uh, Eli was her, I tell the story a lot, but Eli was her hairdresser. You know, she's 96 years old when she died, so, and, and to, to kind of, you know, she's a very elegant woman, and being old, there's, there's not much elegance going on there. And so to have something which made her feel good in that way, like the Eli would come and do her hair, and she'd feel really, really clean and nice, and, and uh, you could see that was a joy for her. But it wasn't like, you know, she wasn't trying to be male and Monroe or something. <laughs> It wasn't self-adorned, it wasn't from ego, right? So, uh, that, that sense of mudita we sometimes don't talk about maybe enough, but there is joy. 
So you, you might think, where does art come into this? Right? Where does, where does uh, visual art or that? Well, I would say if it brought you to awareness rather than it spoke to itself. So art which made you want to own it would, be, would produce craving. Art which, which brought you to a sense of awe or a sense of stillness or that, I would say could be conducive to, to the mind which is present. So, I mean, I've ne I never played a musical instrument, but I imagine that could be that way. But it could also be obsessive, you know, to get the right strings together, whatever one does with music. Um, so, it, if you have a larger project, does it create more craving? Or does it balance your mind? I remember there was a dinner at retreat way back in, uh, in, in Australia, I mean, 30 years ago. And, a person came to me and I said, well, why don't you listen to some music? And they said, oh, you're terrible. How can you say that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it helped them. Yeah, so, uh, but I you know, suggested certain things and so on and so forth. So there certainly is pleasure which is wholesome, that's for sure. Um, but then pleasure in itself is a... Is a uh, is still conditioned. So if I, you know, if I have a uh, like a beautiful environment, is very helpful. But if the environment goes south, <laughs> as we say, and becomes uh, corroded and polluted and so on, I have no choice. So that's my place of practice. So, uh, but I don't have to go to Calcutta to practice. <laughs> I don't need to, you know, wear a hair shirt or anything like that. So not to be a, the, the, I think the danger in, in in misreading Buddhism is that the <coughs> the dukkha part <coughs> is mistaken for evil. That pleasure is evil and wrong, but right? it's not saying that. It's just saying pleasure is conditioned, and hence it's not the unconditioned. But you can you can misconstrue that and take on a Abrahamic sort of take on it and said, so it's bad, it's wrong, and then you, you don't understand what it's about. So if a monk is really going through it, I kind of think, how can I, you know, maybe a bit of pleasure? How, how can I make, you know, do something, make the guy happy? He's going to fall into hell again, but how can I maybe lift him up? Or maybe I'll say, okay, you stay here a while. <laughs> that might be helpful, I don't know. But to me, the language of like the unconditioned, the uncreated, and timeless, these are very important words because they set up your philosophy. They set up your view of why you're doing what you're doing. Why are you doing this stuff? You know, why not just look, have fun? Uh, well, why do you do this? And, 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 and also, to leave Buddhism as just a psychology it would be. Um, misrepresenting the Buddha, that it's just somehow getting your psyche together so you're, you're a better and more productive person. He did, he did realize something. That's important. So fun with awareness. What's that? Fun informed by awareness. Yeah, yeah. Or pleasure. Yeah, like yesterday, I went out in the canoe. It's just a glorious day. Went out and then went up river, upstream. And then I just floated for an hour. And there's the the eagle and all that. Today's raining. I was going to go today too, mm -hmm. but 
I'm not depressed. <laughs> so yeah, to get space, to uplift, yeah, these are, these are healthy things. We don't have to sleep on a, on a bed of uh, nails, that kind of thing. Mudita. Um, my question's uh, around clarity um, and kind of skillful thinking. Um, there, there have been times where I have behaved in a way where I, it's been hurtful to other people and my, um, you know, craving, so then I feel really badly and I want to get out of it, so I immediately go and, I'm so sorry, you know, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And, and then I, I start to realize over time that I was doing that more for myself mm -hmm. to relieve that suffering than I was for that other person. So I started to pull back a bit and, you know, kind of tell myself, okay, I, what's done is done. Um, I can't easily, for example, can't easily contact this person. Um, so now I, I will sit with my suffering and see how that is. And so there's that part of it. And then the other part of it is actually over time, once, um, like after time goes by, then sometimes it'll come to me that there may be um, good reason to go and approach that person for their sake as kind of um, more of the morality angle. And I, I wonder, so the question is whether that is in fact true, whether those are two distinct things and whether the difference is lies in intention. If, if my intention is to serve the other person, then is that okay to do it? And if I realize my intention is to just run away from my own suffering, then that may not well, be Well, you have, you have social convention. And if you go against social convention, then what is required is mea culpa. It is my fault just because of the nature of how we live together as a society. So do you admit to it being... Uh, yeah, it, uh, you know, if I, <clears throat> if I was in a bad mood and I just yelled at one of the monks because they were too tall, <laughs> or something significant like that, <laughs> um, then I'd have to, at, as soon as possible, I would think, say to them, that was wrong, I was in a bad space, okay. But then the other is also important, so like, and, and so if you have an overwrought sense of social convention, then you can, you can be just like, you know, just because I had a, just because I had a slightly raised voice, you know, it's not homicide, <laughs> but my mind might think that was homicide. So that's that exaggeration you have to look at. So um, once you start to look at that, then you start to get, I think that that wanting to get away from the yucky feeling of having said something which is even though they might not perceive it, you certainly perceive it coming from a place which is harmful. You don't even know if it was a place which is harmful because of the conditions. But that's where you have to look at craving. You know, craving not to have this resultant feeling. And, and that resultant feeling might be exaggerated from, because of childhood stuff, right? Because you never did that. And now you're doing that, and it's actually no big deal. And you go to the other person and say, actually, I never noticed anything. Right? So it's exaggerated by other things. But you, you can't dismiss the exaggeration because that is real. The feeling is real. 
So then, you know, then you come back to this model of practice is that the problem isn't this exaggerated feeling of self that's coming up. It's my inability to witness it as an object. It's my inability to let go of the whole subjective narrative. And as if you can approach that, then as you bear with this thing, which is hard to do because it's conditioned from other things, you get more and more strength of awareness around this is also an object, it's not a self, it's not who I am. And as you get better at that, you sit through the, the discomfort of now being with it because you couldn't be with it before. It was just so difficult and, and so painful for mm, complicated reasons. And now you just, wow, I don't want to be this. But you, you get like, you get an inch and then you run away from it. You, you get 1.25 inches <laughs> and you run away from it. But you do get like a little bit better until, until you see a whole volcano come and go and now you've seen the whole, wow, look at that. And you've been the witness. And witnessing is stronger. The inclination to the unconditioned is stronger. The abandonment of craving is stronger. All of that has taken place. Um, and, and, uh, and then when you, when you do it next time, you know, uh, if it happens, you'll, you'll understand it better as it's coming out. And you'll see, well, it's actually, at some point, it's actually no big deal. So, like... <laughs> I used to do that, like the drama, oh, he said something too wrong. And then I, now I say, well, you've got to take a hit. I'm not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it's just, I'm not perfect and sometimes. But I know I don't hate. I don't, I don't hate. I know that sometimes, I, you know, I've got fuses and they, and they sometimes need to blow so people get out of my way. <laughs> and I think that's okay because I'm not trying to hurt them. But if I do it continually, and I always do it, and I never say, you guys are right with that? You know, it's, you know. And if I never dialogue with them, then they'll just be afraid of me. And you know, we won't have a kind of life together. But to think that somehow, I, I say that when monks come, you know, I'm not perfect. You gotta take a hit. If you can't take a hit, you can't be here. I'm gonna try to be nice to you. But if you think I'm always gonna be nice to you, forget it. Go, go live somewhere else. And that's for my own safety. Because I can't be nice to everyone all the time. I just don't. I don't. Uh, don't have that capacity. Sometimes I don't want to be nice to everyone all the time. Sometimes I just want to be bloody-minded so people leave me alone. And that's the only way it can happen, right? And I don't. I don't. I used to be very uh, self-critical of that, but I, I. They know darn well. They care for them because they do a lot for them. But and they also know darn well. He needs some space now. He needs to rest. He needs to be on his own. He doesn't need my questions or my queries or my problems right now. Give him space. So they, you know, they learn to read me. <laughs> if they don't, <laughs> but I don't do it often. You know, I'm usually in a good mood. But but uh, that and that that part of living that's okay, isn't it? Otherwise, how could we live as human beings together? You know, we're always somehow little chipmunks. <laughs> we and happy. <laughs> I don't know, that's the way I am. <laughs> you, get, you get comfortable with your negativity. But there is, you know, when we talk about freedom, we talk about freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. So, you know, wanting, you know, wanting to put more cream cheese on your, on, your, on your bun, is that really greed? You know, it's no big deal, you know? But really, you know, kind of like plotting to get something and thinking about it for days and days, and that's greed. 
and like just getting a bit annoyed at someone because you've got the flu. Is that really hatred? Or, you know, I'm going to get this guy. You know, next time I'm really going to, I'm going to nail that guy anyway. Different, right? And delusion, like just kind of being a, you know, a few self-thoughts coming and going as opposed to really thinking that all your opinions are correct. <laughs> you know, so, so the weight of it, I think, is important. And I think because the, the people that come to Buddhism are actually very good folk. You know, they're very high-minded and, and very idealistic. Then they can very get down on themselves for things which, you know, in the normal, it's not, is it such a big deal? You know, is it such a big deal? At least that's that. That's the conclusion I'm coming to as I get older, because because uh, otherwise we get a bit unreal. And I think we get too. I think Buddhism becomes too precious. You know, and everyone walks around in little Buddhist tiptoes, <laughs> and you know, talks in a precious voice. You know, kind of like a real strong voice. Why not? Or uh, you know, kind of a bit more real, maybe. When people whisper, it drives me crazy. So if you're going to talk, just talk. <laughs> it's my hang-up. <laughs> What's that? Is it different in East and West? Well, it, it, you have to ask Tutu, but in, in, uh, in uh, say, in Thailand, I'm told that the perception is more, the, what are the group thinking? I mean, we have that too. But very, very much the, the, the sensitivity is much more to the group. How's the group operating and how do I fit into the group? And in the West, maybe, there is some of that, but sometimes it's based upon, okay, so how can I, how can I figure this group out to score my particular needs or whatever? And, and that's, that's a kind of um, simplistic definition. But culturally, a Thai villager... Uh, villager and, and a farmer, say, that I stayed with in, in Northeast Thailand, he was different than an urban guy. So urban, I think urban ties are much more related to urban Canadians as opposed to maybe Isan people because their conditioning is more from the village and from, from that kind of thing. So that's maybe why urban ties kind of like to hang out with Western monks. Because we've, you know, we've been educated in that way. We've read similar things. We, you know, we're on the internet. Uh, sometimes they can't quite relate to the village monks who have come and have come through farming backgrounds, because they have a different kind of conditioning. I and mean, that's what people have told me. Does that make any sense? Is that too simplistic? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have much uh, experience, but. I think it's the, the urban is like more honest to people. Is that right? I think oh, that's interesting. Yeah. More saying directly. Yeah. And in the country? <coughs> in the city. In the city is like more, uh, uh, what you call, like you say, not, not try to uh, make, it, make people hurt. Aha. Uh-huh. You try, you can be but, more direct? Uh, no, in the city, no, they like to oh, try. Oh, the other way around. Yeah, yeah. It's the safe face. And in the country? The country is more direct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, it's true, like in, in Ubon, if, if someone was fat, his name would be Uwan. <laughs> and Uwan means fat. 
they'd never say he's laterally challenged. <laughs> or, or if someone was short, his name would be Thea, which means shorty. <laughs> it was just so straight, like, oh, here's Fatty. What's your name? My name's Fatty. <laughs> and he's not bothered by it. Or yeah, the other guy's like four foot eight. What's your name? Thea. I'm sure he <laughs> just you got it really straight. <laughs> well, that, yeah, it's so. so hmm. That's why when Westerners do work with Thai companies, they find it very confusing to get feedback because no one wants to give them direct feedback, right? Everything's good, Ajahn. Yeah. So, but then they hear it from the back. Mm. Well, that's many cultures do that, I suppose. Yeah. In the end, I guess we're just human beings. Mm-hmm. Some of us were, a couple of us were talking earlier about a Tibetan nun, a Western Tibetan nun who spent a significant amount of time in a cave. In ten cave. years, isn't it? Is that the one? Thirteen. Thirteen, a long, long time. Yeah. Okay. And then she also spent a significant amount of time in a male monastery. So she. Afterwards, or before? Before. And she was asked, uh, after these two periods of uh, solitary practice with, with the monastery, she was asked about loneliness. And she said she didn't feel lonely in the cave, but she did feel lonely at the monastery. Right. And so um, she felt lonely because she wasn't able to be included because of the way the rules are. The resort, yeah. Being a female, she couldn't be included in what the, the male the monks were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it made me wonder about um, no, noble friends. That it, you know, if noble friends are, you know, the Buddha said, noble friends, Kalyanamita, are all of the path. Um, how, how does that kind of um, fit, fit together? So she's dealing with loneliness. Um, with noble friends. With, with no, no friends. No friends, yeah. Yeah, or. Or am I just... No, she's, she has an aptitude to solitude. Not everyone does. Yeah. And she gets nourished by solitude and has her own wisdom because she came out of that pretty good from what I've read. Huh? Yeah. So uh, I think you just have to look at her as a person. And then the feelings of loneliness that people get in monasteries, the stewards get that here. Because, yeah. you know, like... And the Rasa is good, we, we, you know, we bring him into the Vinaya and so on. But if a woman is a steward, we can't do that. So that's just the nature of the structure. And, and, and a lot of women feel, say, frustrated by that. But there's not much that we can really actually want to do. You know, it's the way we live our lives, we offer what we can. Right. Um, so Kalyanamitta then is hard to find in a structure where you don't fit in, right? So, so is it... I, I guess I wonder if it's understanding the necessity around it. Like if she was able to do what she achieved, she achieved what she achieved without having that. Yeah. Friends. I mean, she obviously had the strength of it. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, 
the, like solitude is this, very few people can pull that off without, I think, getting deluded or getting yeah. hurt. So she, you know, she's an exceptional woman to do that. Um, but then Kalyanamitta in, in, in that male monastery, then usually the woman is there because she's come because of the teacher and the teacher establishes that relationship because you don't, you don't like, we don't ordain people unless the person takes a nisaya, uh, dependence on the abbot. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't ordain a woman because I don't want to give nisaya to a woman because I don't have the training or I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really believe in mixed communities in that sense. Right? Uh, I think they work much better if they're separate in that way. So if a woman wanted to be here and want to be a nun, I said, I can't offer you that. If you want to be here as a long-term guest, okay, you can, but I can only offer you so much. So I just set my own boundaries. I'm available and so on. And I said, well, that's, this is what we can offer. And, and um, then the person has to make a choice, okay. Um, that's what's on offer and work with that. As opposed to having some sense of universal inclusion in some way, which, which just doesn't work that way. So, um, can, can one do solitude practice? Well, again, it's, it's rare. Uh, I don't know, did she see a teacher every few months? Or was she 13 years totally on her own? Did she not seek out her teacher every few months? I don't know if it was every few months. I think it might have been every couple of years, but I'm not... That, that little. So she would have got her food from where? Somebody came up and dropped it off dropped outside it off. of her cave. So the, the Tibetans do have that tradition of three years retreat. And in that tradition, what I've read is they do see the teacher. And the teacher monitors them. Uh, and watches their practice, so they, you know, and they and they do practices which are actually quite um, specific. The, the, what I've read about the three years, three years, three months, three weeks, three days, three hours retreats. <clears throat> so I'm surprised that she didn't do that, that she didn't have that kind of guidance if she's in the Tibetan tradition. She may have, and I just don't remember. Oh, okay. But I, I thought that she was just kind of up there on her own without interaction for at least longer chunks of time. I would look into that, yeah. Certainly that's what I would advise anyone. If you're going to do a long solitude practice, check, just check in if you're still a human being. <laughs> you've not become a ghost of some sort. Check in with other human beings. Because it's not, it's not about some kind of determination of being alone. It's being alone and monitoring that, and then being with people, you know, so it's not... Yeah, I know the, in, um, where do they do it, up in, where Trunk was started up, in Scotland, that place, that monastery in Scotland. Semiling, I think, Semiling, is it? Yeah, they'll do, they'll do that, but their teacher will give them quite a program of visualizations and practices to do, and they'll do that. But you so your question is, can you do it alone? Is that what the question is? Or? No, no, I think my question is more around, um, I guess, establishing that, that community. Of, I mean, of not a, I mean, she did it, she had whatever she needed to do it on her own. Um, but kind of understanding how that was possible when the Buddha has said, we need, you know, he's oh. such emphasis on Kalyanamita. I think she would have had permission from her teacher. Because monasticism is not 
a hermit practice. It's a practice in community where your, your preceptor gives you permission to try these things out. So my take on it would be she would have asked her preceptor, and he said, yeah, you, you know, give it a go, see how it goes, and he would organize the support for her. But where was it? Was it in Ladakh or in Tibet itself? Or? Um, I have a little map, I think it was around the Spiti Valley. Oh yeah, yeah, lovely. Yeah. Probably, I mean, that's the way it would work with us. If, if a monk wants to do solitary practice, mm -hmm. I'd say, first of all, just be in community five years. <laughs> and then if she said, Bhante, I, I want to disappear. No, you have to go on alms around. So, you know, to, for a monk to actually do, like, solitary practice, we, we would, <clears throat> Theravada wouldn't really say, no, that's not what a monk does. Um, but he might be alone in a uh, near a village and go alms around every day, and that's quite common. Not common, but it's not, you know, like in Sri Lanka, monks will do that, Western monks. Mm -hmm. But that would be in that social context. Yeah. And there two around Saros uh, Kuti. I mean, around, oh. like five kilometers away. Oh, he does that. Yeah, yeah. Creates that. But you see, it's in a, it's in a cultural context. Yeah. That solitude isn't just someone living in Alaska. Yeah. You know, they're in a cu cultural context of ritual and teacher and community and supplies being given. Yeah, now, that's the way we, we would do that, right? So there's a protection there and so on. I, I'm not sure how she did it. She must have had some cultural context, right? Um, when she was in the... Uh, yeah. As far as, like, meeting with other people, or...? Well, somehow, how she got fed, how she expressed her needs, did she go shopping? No, no, she she had arranged before, at least from what I remember from the book, she had arranged, like, before she went into the cave for someone to periodically bring her food. And did the teacher arrange that? Did she arrange that? I do not recall her saying any, you know, periodic interaction with the teacher other than like every few years coming down to renew her visa or something like that. Oh. Can I interject a question? Sure, yeah. <clears throat> so, in the absence of community, or being in a community that's not your community, so to speak, yeah. what's your advice? Well, I don't know really. I'm in community. Um, well, figure out what you can and can't do. And try not to dwell on what you can't do. So that, that's, that's a torture of, you know, I think there was, a, there was a lady here who really resented not being able to be a bhikkhu and hang out with us as bhikkhus, right? And I said, yeah, well, I didn't set this up, you know? I didn't, it's not my idea, it's just the way it is. And you could feel, you could feel the resentment in your voice, you know, around that. <laughs> So, um, it's just the kind of limitation of, of our social structure. Um, so within that, you, you look at the, the, the frustration of not being able to have that avenue, and that has to be part of your practice, obviously, right? Not, not as a, a fait accompli, but as a way of, of, of looking at how the sense of self, what craving is, da-da-da-da, all that whole nine yards. Um, and then you have the, but then you still have to do something. Right? And then you have the frustration, okay, 
how am I going to do this and where can I do it? And you just have to say, okay, there are very, you know, there are these options, not many, maybe more I'd like. And you just have to kind of settle with the world of Dhammas being that way, right? There's just no real answer to it. Because um, I, you know, when I, when I ordained, I didn't know anything. So I didn't sign up for, for, for spreading Buddhism or, you know, building a nun's order or building monasteries. I didn't sign up for any of it. I just wanted to be free. And then things happened. And, and, um, but I, for myself, I saw that I, I didn't like mixed communities. I didn't like them because I didn't like the contentiousness that arises in Western mixed communities over the rules that uh, nuns are junior to monks. Mm. And what became dominant in those mixed communities was that argument. And, the, and I, I saw that the Dharma became secondary. So what became primary was a cultural um, conflict between Pali Buddhism, Asian Buddhism, and Western values of egalitarianism, feminism, and so on. So that's why I tend just to, we do our thing, Aya does her thing. Because I know when it comes together, when we come together for functions, I always get emails, why does I have to do this, and why does she have to do that, and then I say, oh yeah, okay. So I've, I've basically given up on having functions together. Not because, I mean, I can take criticism, it's alright, but I don't want that, that bit to become the predominant theme around I want the Dharma to do, you know, suffering in the end of suffering, right? And it seems to me, by keeping things separate, um, uh, rather, because I'm not a political being and I'm not going to change Theravada Buddhism, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, and, right? I'm going to change it, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I know, I know, you know, there's, there's a status quo which, you know, just have to kind of live with, and then things happen slowly, eyes, place, grows, and so on. But that's my kind of take on it, is let's not, let's try to do the best we can and not get too caught in those kind of modern issues, which are relevant, but when we live separately, they don't become dominant, right? They don't, they don't, you know, the Dharma becomes, so that's where I've, you know, those are over 45 years of trying different, because I was very early on, I was very keen on the community. You know, I thought two communities living together, but I saw Amaravati. I didn't think it worked. I didn't think it really, really worked well. I mean, and 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 what what happened in Amaravati, I think, is that both communities just came more and more separate, mm -hmm. right? In one in one facility, and that seemed to work mm -hmm. the, the best it could, right? So visited there. Yeah, yeah, and and that's through an experiment, a practical experiment in time. Um, yeah, so that's just, that's the world of dharmas, right? That's kind of thing. Like, I have psoriasis. Because <laughs> you live with it, right? There's no cure. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you're always living, like, as I get older, too, I'm going to get more and more limit, limitations. So someday I won't be able to make it to the workshop anymore. Great tragedy. <laughs> or Marion was telling me as someone who can't do any knitting anymore. And you think that's no big deal, but it is. This little old lady, much of her life is like knitting, and all of a sudden there's loss. So these limitations are part of part of uh, yeah, the worldly dominance. That's the world is like that. It's limited. It's frustrating. Uh, and to want it to be other than that, do a little bit, but you can't. 
So you face it square on. These are the limits. These are the limitations. And uh, <laughs> I remember that, that young woman came at me and said, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I'm innocent. I do the best I can. <laughs> she wasn't really blaming, but you could just, boy, you know, she could hear the frustration in her voice. A good person, too. Yeah. Yeah. I I haven't read that biography, but I I was heard very you know, wonderful things about but again very hard to do. Not just to kinda go off into your own whatever. It's not easy at all. We're yeah, Theravad wasn't you know, Bhikkhu life wasn't built for that kind of solitude to be a hermit. Some monks in Sri Lanka will just ordain a samaneras to do that, and they can store food, but that's rare, because they exactly they want to, they want to live that kind of live in a cave. All right. Huh? What? What? You asked me, would you like to go live in solitude in a cave in this? No. <laughs> How about a cold, wet cave? <laughs> With a canyon. Huh? With a canyon. I don't like caves. I find them. I, I, I've only lived in caves maybe two months. And I always want to be at the mouth of the cave. <laughs> I find them too claustrophobic. I like heights, mountains. But. Uh, yeah, solitude. It's good. So I think I think our life is, is that's what we're trying to do. You know, winter retreat, solitude, and the rest of the time quite active, interactive. That's that's pretty good. I have seen monks kind of go into solitude and get depressed, and because they they really don't have good samadhi, and they get passive, and then their old habits take over. So they're okay. Come to morning meeting. <laughs> Start cooking and chopping wood back into normality. So we, you know, if someone asked to do solitude, like for a long period of time, they'd have to be at least five vasa. And then they'd have to find an abbot who would kind of support that. Older monks, like if 30 vasa, then you get options like that. I get all kinds of options. But I like, this is good. Okay, shall we uh, pack it in? Yeah. Thank you. All right. You're going tomorrow, huh? Yes. Bon voyage. Thank you. <laughs> Remember, you're going nowhere. Things are uncertain. Does... Do you go to St. Catherine's, or does St. Catherine's arise in awareness? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly it appears. <laughs> this, like, is this experience? Am I sitting here, yeah. and you're sitting there, or does the perception of individuality and space and all that arise and cease in awareness? It's way too complicated for me. Because that's the secret. That this this world arises and ceases in awareness, okay. and that's always timeless. So there is time, but time exists in awareness.
in the tongues. So <laughs> that should confuse you. <laughs> so things don't exist until yeah, okay. they, they appear, right? Yeah, because and they appear because of causes different. and conditions. Yeah. But is awareness dependent on causes and conditions? Is presence dependent on causes and conditions? Is consciousness dependent on causes and conditions? Sense consciousness is, but the knowing is that dependent? Trick question. <laughs> Give me an answer tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. That's. Ah. <laughs>